Hi, Habibis. I just wanted to let you all know that Habibti Please is part of the Harbinger Media Network. This network is very important to me and others as a group of progressive voices creating independent media that challenges predominant narratives told in right-wing and liberal media. I want to recommend some shows I personally enjoy that are part of the Harbinger Media Network, such as Rob Rousseau's 49th Parahal, as well as the Indigenous storytelling series Feel Rouge, which features stories from Indigenous communities in the far north of Quebec. Harbinger is listener supported. You can get subscriber specific content when you head over to harbingermedianetwork.com and subscribe. Hey Ryan, so we are in Ontario and we are at the end, I hope, of our third lockdown. Although today Bonnie Crombie said she's scared there's going to be a fourth wave of COVID here. So how are you feeling with this this lockdown while it gets warm out? I am feeling not good. Honestly, we've been locked down for so long in Toronto and Peel. It's been like great that the weather has been getting better so we can more safely hang out outdoors. But it's just so annoying how preventable the situation was and sitting here and having to comply while every week outside my window, hundreds (laughs) and hundreds of anti-lockdown protesters march. And obviously they... Obviously, those people have all the wrong ideas. But sometimes when I'm sitting here, I want to join them because like the basis is right. Why are we still in the lockdown? Because of government mismanagement. It's so interesting, the anti-masker lockdowns, because there was a Mr. Ford who never comments on their protests, but he did comment on a pro-Palestine protest a few weeks ago at Nathan Phillips Square as a safety hazard, although everybody we saw was masked. And so it's just very interesting that the anti-maskers who even derailed a vaccine site. Yep, the Chinatown vaccine site, they went and they started protesting in front of it. And actually, that's been a whole situation because I remember seeing how people came to the Chinatown vaccine site where residents of Chinatown were getting their first dose and people from rich neighborhoods in Toronto were protesting to get their second dose. And this like is just a reoccurring theme where the vaccine rollout has been egregious, although people seem to be forgetting, don't they, Ryan? Yeah, people really seem to be forgetting. Ford's poll numbers are rising. There is zero reason for Ford to be in anybody's good books. Now, I think about just over 60% of Ontario's population has gotten their first dose, which is great from where we were a couple months ago. And great for us, not so great for the rest of the world. But now people have this dose in their arms and the weather is getting better. And suddenly Doug Ford has done nothing wrong. I don't think so. I've also thought about how people are getting a bit too happy because soon we're going to be able to be on patios and they're not realizing that Doug Ford just kind of left us to die, which you and I have talked about before a bit and how it makes literally no sense for him to go up in numbers when he was literally missing for so long. And the man can't even use an iPad to log onto Zoom and he gets paid sick days and got to isolate forever. And the fact that he even was in the in the house today was a big deal. Like that's kind of sad for the premier of Ontario. Yeah, well, his PR strategy has been to hide from the public and it worked which is pathetic yeah and his staff has even called it protect the king like it's a whole thing like it's a whole thing it's called protect the king and his cronyism is ridiculous and he even tried to get his buddies like mcvetty to get a college a christian college that's just disturbing his islamophobic buddies and so today ryan and i were, were chatting because we recorded an episode with andrea horvath two months ago but we still think it's super important so if the context seems a little off time wise we're kind of giving you a context of what Ontario is like right now, but also we don't think people should forget 
about what Ontario was just going through within the last three months because of Doug Ford and his incompetent government. People need to remember that just because the majority of the population is now doing well, it doesn't mean that a lot of minorities are. And the most vulnerable in our society are still not doing well. Sex workers, migrant workers, a lot of elderlies who live in multi-generational homes. These people are still not being served, even if like the Toronto elite finally have their first dose. And so, you know, the vast majority of the population is no longer upset with Doug Ford because they personally are not being mistreated. It doesn't mean that lots and lots of parts of the population are still not being mistreated. Yeah. And it's super weird to see people just kind of forget that one, he completely like abandoned the province during some of the worst parts of the rollout. And he left it to Christine Elliott and then his labor minister, whose name who's so like so forgettable and Fullerton, who's just like ridiculous. He just left it to them to manage and, and, people forget that like undocumented people are people who are hesitant to show documents for very valid reasons in this province can't even get their first dose homebound seniors have largely not gotten their first doses a migrant worker died after serving five seasons picking our food people should get status upon arrival and Ford has not helped by just advocating for like border closures he did that whole like chaotic press conference three weeks ago where he was like playgrounds are off limits and he backtracked because parents got so angry but the minute that that happened, that worked out. And I would argue that's largely because there's parents who would vote for him and they come from a certain socioeconomic status. Whereas people were so angry for Peel region where we even witnessed the death of a 13 year old Emily Victoria Viegas and her father was a factory worker and had two parents who were essential workers and her father was scared to have to send her away for treatment for COVID-19 and she ended up dying because our hospitals were bursting at the seams, our ICUs were bursting at the seams. Yep, and she's from Brampton and Brampton has one hospital for a population of 600,000 people. That is a criminal ratio of hospital to persons. It is just so steeped in racism, where when we look at the demographics of Brampton, where almost everybody there is black or brown, and also work in Amazon warehouses and distribution centers and packaging centers, and they just don't get healthcare. And this province's vaccine rollout was largely digital heavy, where people were relying on a Twitter page called Vax Hunters Canada and refreshing. And basically, it was like Hunger Games. And you had to be like, at least for me, I was one of those people where like, I had to be like refreshing a page for like an hour. So did my sister, so did multiple other people online or be on the phone, like just, and you have to, you have, you have to have a certain amount of privilege to either work from home or be at home and not be like somebody who works at a grocery store, somebody who works hard labor, somebody who is, has some tech literacy. Like my mom cannot navigate Twitter and figure that out. Neither could a lot of people. And I've been doing some phone banking with a campaign for York Southwestern. And a lot of the complaints from people with landlines is that they don't, they didn't know how to get a vaccine the way that the Ford government rolled this out. The shoppers drug mart website crashed for multiple people. They had a year to do this, to figure out some infrastructure around this that was equitable. And they absolutely did not. The provincial government didn't, our municipalities didn't. And it's just been really... Like, it's been pathetic because if there's one thing our governments are there for, it's to take care of the population in an emergency. And this is exactly what that is. And so the way they've just sort of given up on their responsibilities from the beginning is really telling. And we need to make sure that we're not trusting them with power ever again. 
we witnessed the deaths of 4,000 people, which included staff and other people in long-term care facilities. Marilee Fullerton did a press conference a week ago where she announced that they will they will still get AC in long-term home care homes, but that's like so many consecutive liberal and conservative governments managed to not have AC in long-term care homes, which is egregious. And Marilee Fullerton has had a while to implement this. They found out about this last summer and they still have an issue. Oh, Marilee Fullerton, I can talk about her forever. She was elected in this this most recent election and was given the cabinet minister position of training colleges and universities. So she was in charge of the post-secondary file. As a student at the time, we saw the way they cut tuition, which is, was actually a good thing that they did. But they also cut financial aid by a lot. So now people didn't have the ability to pay because the tuition cut didn't correlate to the amount that was cut from aid. And then she also specifically tried to undermine student organizing by making student union fees optional. This just this exactly type of like union busting type of activity that conservatives are known for, but on, um, on the student scale. And that was a complete political decision. Like it wasn't based in any fact or reality. They just hated it. Ford sent out a message to his donors calling student unions crazy Marxist organizations. I wish student unions were crazy Marxist organizations, but it doesn't mean that they're not, they're providing services and are an advocacy voice for students, even if they're not uh, where we all want them to be politically and it's not a reason to cut them. So that's this is just the type of person person Fullerton is and like what she has implemented and doesn't really make decisions based on fact or reality. Um, And then when this long-term care issue came up, she just keeps deflecting it to previous governments. Yeah, sure. The previous liberal governments also failed in long-term care homes. Nobody is questioning that. But you're in government now and you had a year to fix this. The previous liberals made long-term care a specific part of the health portfolio. They made it Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. So they knew something was wrong. They didn't take enough action. But then this new government comes in knowing that the previous government knew something was wrong and did nothing and then goes and tries to blame everyone but themselves. It's just pathetic. Ryan and I thought about the way the province is, and we often talk about politics in this province, but we always record episodes that are more federally focused, but we were like, no, like this vaccine rollout is really egregious and just the last year under Ford and seeing the austerity measures that have been implemented during the pandemic, it's scary. And I don't think it's easy to be an activist or an organizer under a Ford government. The fact that he is the premier of a province yet had the audacity to comment on an international issue. He has power. It's true. And I can only see his government expanding. He's been hosting $1,000 Zoom fundraisers. And so we thought it was important to do an episode with Andrea Horvath, who is the affiliate of the official opposition. For those who do not know, of the NDP. She's been with the NDP for a while now. We thought it was important to do an episode with her and we wanted to frame questions around the vaccine rollout, but also some questions around the Green New Democratic deal, as well as the NDP's stance on policing. We were really grateful to be able to speak to her, especially at a time when she was doing quite an effective job as opposition, just constantly raising the issues of paid sick days, raising the issues of the vaccine rollout. And, you know, we can debate about the methods that they do it, but paid sick days very, very successfully became a huge issue in Ontario. And that's in no small part because of the NDP. 
The Ford government implemented some sort of paid sick day program that will not be permanent and really is just a stopgap measure. So, you know, again, they don't care about employees. It's been interesting to see the way Andrea Horvath has raised the party profile and has made the Ontario NDP really a name that people are starting to recognize and think of as legitimate. She's brought the party up from constant third status to official opposition. And that's been really cool to see. Um, It's been really cool to see how, you know, when the Liberals are in in power, their official oppositions are conservatives. So you have this uh, like center, center right government being pulled to the right. And now you have a conservative government in power that's being pulled to the left in a much further way than they would if the Liberals were the opposition. And so it's been really great to see the effect that that's had on our politics, the discussions that we've been having, what gets prioritized, what comes on the agenda. And there's still a lot more work to do. I mean, we wouldn't be having this podcast if we didn't think that that you know progressive issues didn't meet, need more attention. But it's been really cool to see the way the NDP have kind of jumped to stardom almost. And one thing Ryan and I are hesitant about is just assuming that the NDP will have an easy election provincially next round, because we understand that it was a very specific context in which they became the opposition. The sex ed curriculum was a hot button issue. People really disliked Kathleen Wynne. And so it was literally a situation where the NDP collected a lot of seats. Yes, they did work hard, but there was also a deep dislike and distrust of the liberals, which does obviously factor into this. And so we are interested in seeing what happens. We are a year out from the provincial election. The provincial election will be June 2nd, 2022. So the countdown is on to get Ford out. And I think one thing I want to emphasize is that it's hard to be an activist under the Ford government. The amount of policing, he literally wanted to turn Ontario into a police state at the beginning of the third lockdown. But the amount of policing in other ways, like Ryan said, like campus activism is obviously an incubator for the beginning of a lot of people's activist journeys in Ontario, especially campus student union activism. We see a lot of um, Ontario's biggest activists as young adults come out of student unions. Ryan and I did different things with the student union and you grow up and you, it just gives you a foundation. It gives you a skill set and certain trainings. And we see that and, and wanting to kill student unions is, is a way to kill future Ontario activism. I would say the way Ford has kind of streamlined evictions to be on to be on the internet, something Ryan and I have both talked about on this show, we've interviewed people, we just we do need Ford out. We have a year to fire Ford. And we can't forget just because everybody has their first dose now that Ford will kill you at the first opportunity he gets. Maybe with his cheesecake recipe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was the funniest moment. Okay, like also Ford's kind of a clown, but like, <laughs> but he's killing people. So I can't laugh that much about him. But yeah. so Ryan, like, why does the NDP provincially matter in this political moment? Let's go down the, a list we have. Yeah. Why so, do you think so? Well, you know, just last week, we got really, really terrible news in Canada of the discovery of 215 Indigenous children were discovered at Kamloops Indian Residential School. Um, For those of you who don't know what the residential school system is, it was essentially a policy of cultural genocide that the Canadian government implemented and was operated by the Catholic and Anglican and United Churches of Canada. And that program was there to, in the words of 
our founding whatever to kill the Indian in the child. And it was there to eradicate their culture. And it has produced the legacy we see today, led to the 60s scoop of, um, you know, indigenous children being taken out of foster home, which is still happening. And the last residential school closed in 1994. But what was not really ever discussed was how many children were dying in residential schools. And so when, when this came out, it was just horrifying, horrifying to think of how many children were buried in a mass grave in a school and the government knew about this. And this has caused us to think more about who we are honoring as Canadian historical leaders. One of those people is Egerton Ryerson, who has a school named after him in Ontario, Ryerson University, and a big statue on campus. And this parallels the issue of Confederate statues in the south of the U.S. Egerton Ryerson designed the residential school system. He also happened to be an Ontario Minister of Education, but he designed the residential school system. He is responsible for those deaths of 215 people. A lot of people are responsible, but he is also responsible. And so why do we have a statue of him? Why do we need a statue? The NDP are the only party who have called for taking down the Ryerson statue and renaming Ryerson University, because why should we be paying homage to racists? And so when you have only one party doing this, it's very important to think about what that party is contributing to our discourse. Yeah, and and we acknowledge like the limitations of electoral politics, but the fact that the other two parties not only don't care, there's just absolute like kind of weird, just kind of hollow words going on, whereas it's an actionable item and it's a response to what Indigenous people are asking for, students and educators at Ryerson, which people are now referring to as X University. Yeah. That's their ask. And that ask, like Ryan said, so this is this parallels kind of what happened, what's hap- happened in the States last year with the Confederate statues. But what continues to happen, because Ryerson last summer, people asked to remove this statue. Yeah. And so this is an ongoing ask from the Indigenous community and people in solidarity with the Indigenous community. And there have been people sitting in uh, bringing shoes and painting messages onto the statue. And it's a statue. It can be taken down. And the fact that I think it, I think it's not to give the NDP too much credit, but to have a political party and the leader come out and put out a pretty strong statement about taking down the statue renaming and what it means for Indigenous people to have to see that statue and have to go to an institution named after this architect of a pro a mass murder program, a mass extermination program. Yeah, that's what that that's what residential schools were. I I think it's it's something big, and I think again, like as activists, we can get more under an NDP government than a provincially than a conservative government. And there's also, um, so Sol Mamakwa is one of the MPPs for the NDP. He has put forward a water bill. It went through its second reading. So again, this is like the liberal promise of having water, clean water by this year was broken March, 2021. There are still 33 communities without clean water. 33 communities doesn't mean only 30. So it's 33 communities, but it's actually 39 sites. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually it keeps fluctuating because some of the places that have clean water, the liberal government partnered with private providers. And some people think that some of the sites aren't actually clean. They just tested clean a few times, if that makes sense. So the water right. is still giving kids rashes in some places that are, that are quote unquote clean, that the tap water is clean now. Housing in Ontario for some First Nations is still unavailable or like black mold exists in them. Again, 
Solma Makwa is one of the MPPs who is fighting for housing to be one of the planks of the NDP if they are to become majority government. Well, it's important that Seoul is putting this forward, especially about clean water on reserves, because that's federal responsibility. And like what the provincial government always does is they say, oh, we don't need to like take care of indigenous people because that's federal, that's federal. But the provincial government is still the crown. The provincial government is still obliged to honor treaties and this like federal provincial like disconnect which is all you know it's just artificial anyway is part of the reason why reserves are not getting water because they'll just pass the buck to the other one and obviously racism and ford has like attacked mpp monaco like it's been when he got his vaccine he had flown into a, a community had invited him a first nation had invited him to get their vaccine to promote vaccine uptake in the community and so he did it and he distributed it the photo of him doing it amongst his constituents and amongst indigenous peoples and then ford in the legislature has the audacity to stand up and tell him that he's jumping the line for vaccines like like, like how who are you to say this like what audacity do you have when you are failing so badly at a vaccine rollout that the opposition is stepping up to try and encourage people because they actually care about human beings for you to make racist remarks to an indigenous MPP because he got he was invited by a first nation to, to get a vaccine the Ford government also cut the cultural language education curriculum which was a curriculum that some high schools had it I did not go to a high school that had it but I did visit a high school and do a guest lecture at a high school that had it in Hamilton and it was the only reason that they had like an indigenous history course that students could learn Mohawk at that school it was because of this curriculum so they place it in certain high schools I would say where there's an interest or there's teachers that have the capacity and capabilities and the Ford government cut that piece of the curriculum there's obviously in Canada also a huge issue of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and then NDP has bumped that inquiry a few times and will continue to, I would hope. And again, like Ryan said, they always shove it off as a federal issue. Although provincially, there are members of the NDP that I think in the last three years have made it a point that it's also a provincial issue. And we're happy to see that. And so uh, beyond that, we also think the NDP is important as political moment because we had the strictest lockdown in North America and we had these eviction blitzes and we have unhoused people literally being cleared so that the Batman movie can film uh, in downtown Toronto, which I just saw, which is disgusting. And they made a fake encampment for the Batman movie or something. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. A fake encampment built under the, I guess, the gardener ramp. Yeah, where they where, also did that dinner. Where a real encampment of unhoused people was cleared out. Like, I like, just I can't don't, even fathom. I don't get where we live. I, like, don't understand where we live. The science table was ignored multiple times. Now, uh, one of the science leads was replaced by, like, Dr. Arthur or something, who's, like, also bad. And I think that's why Ford was in the house finally today. Uh, again, the paid sick days program, it's only three days. We know that with COVID-19, you have to isolate for 14. The test takes a few days to get results in. So again, three paid sick days makes absolutely no sense, even when you couple it with the federal program. Yeah. It's also not easy to apply to for people who are temporary workers, foreign workers, or people who are just like scared of dealing with multiple levels of government. Like paperwork's not easy. The EI system mm. here is not easy. Like when I was unemployed for a bit, I missed some EI because it was just, I didn't get my like numbers that I needed to like put in there. And then it just didn't work out that way. And LTC, like long-term care, there's still no AC. So yeah, we think 
we think on NDP government matters in this moment. And we hope people enjoy this episode with Andrea. Yeah, and we also like, we also think that that people should continue to push the NDP to the left. That's yeah. very important still, right? We're not taking this for granted because NDP government doesn't mean success. So we can just look at British Columbia as an yeah. example for that. So, you know, it's very important for us and for everybody to continue to be critical even to an opposition. But, you know, we also want to give credit where it's due. Like our options are Doug Ford. <laughs> Or Del Duca or Andrea. Yeah. And I know who I'm picking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, we have less than a year to vote Ford out, but also another four years under Ford would be horrendous. We would not be able to reverse this province because after Mike Harris, we were already gutted. And I just yeah. can't even imagine what another four years of Ford would do. Goodbye to the green belt. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like goodbye, green belt. Yeah. Good- goodbye, green belt. Like goodbye. goodbye. French, like, (laughs) goodbye. Yeah, just, like, goodbye everything. Wait, like, can people under 24 still get free prescription medication? Uh, Is it going to be gone soon? Well, they reduce the amount of drugs that you're able to get. And if you have a private insurance, you can't, you're not eligible anymore. Oh. It doesn't matter if your private insurance is not equivalent. I feel like goodbye OSAP. Like, I feel like... Goodbye, like everything, like hello. goodbye, Laurentian University. Oh yeah, that's like the other Ford thing. Yeah, like goodbye, Laurentian. Goodbye, like the one of the only Northern universities. Yeah, like like Laurentian is it went bankrupt under a Ford government. Goodbye to Nipissing University. You know, goodbye to Lakehead. Right, all these Northern universities. Do you think they're prioritized? No, they're putting a French language university in Toronto. Yeah, like hello, Christian college, McVetty's homophobic, yeah. transphobic, Islamophobic, racist Christian college. Like, like yeah, the fact that they got that, that through because it's Ugh. Ford's, like the crony, the cronyism under Ford is despicable. So we hope people enjoyed listening to Ryan and I banter, but yeah. please listen to the second half of this episode. That's actually very important. It's a conversation we had two months ago with Andrea Horvath. Thanks everyone. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Habibti, please. We are very honored to have with us MPP Andrea Horvath, who represents Hamilton Center. Ryan and I are super happy to meet you. We both also went to McMaster and lived in Hamilton for years. Andrea is also presently the leader of the opposition in the legislature. Could you tell us a bit about you? Uh, Well, thanks. And I'm so happy to uh, be with you this uh, afternoon. And I I don't know what my life is an open book. You just got to Google me. It's all there. (laughs) Wikipedia, here I come. (laughs) No, I'm serious. I mean, I've been doing politics for a long time. I didn't I didn't grow up wanting to be a politician. That certainly wasn't something that I thought was my path. Uh, I went to Mac, as we've already uh, established and started in business, actually, and ended up in labor studies. Uh, so went from, you know, one thing to the other, <laughs> yeah. uh, quite the opposite, but really spent, you know, spent some of my years in, you know, as an uh, as a youth, and then my early years in university and beyond, 
on social justice issues. It's just what moved me all my life. And so whether it was, you know, whether it was in the 80s, women's uh, women's marches were major and they were fantastic. Lots of feminist activism then. Um, you know, Hamilton, it's about the environment. You know, let's let's face it. So yeah. some activism around that. I mean, injured workers, tenants. I worked at a legal clinic doing poverty law. And I think that's when I really decided it was time to try to be on the inside as a policy maker, as opposed to just on the outside, you know, banging on the, jo- the doors for, um, you know, for justice and equity. And, and that's uh, that's what happened. I uh, There was a conservative government downloaded a whole bunch of social policy type of uh, areas to the municipal mm-hmm. level. And so my activist friends and I drew the straws and I got the short straw on <laughs> <laughs> who was going to actually get elected. I'm only kidding. I went, went down something like that. But, but really, I wasn't planning on going into politics, but just my path just took me here. That's awesome. And, and the effect that, that Mike Harris has had, uh, at least it produced something good, <laughs> which is you entering <laughs> the legislature. Um, Thanks, right. And we wanted to start by talking about the what's on everybody's mind in Ontario right now, and that's the COVID vaccine rollout. For us, like, we look at this and it's really like, I think, like, deplorable is almost the word to describe it, right? Like, the shopper's website is crashing. They've had a year to build this infrastructure. We understand there's been uncertainty in the plans and uncertainty in the federal, you know, acquisition of vaccines. But what we see online from the provincial government is so bare bones. We have no idea who exactly is going to be prioritized in the future. And so what criticism and and push have you and the NDP placed on the government? And I'm also curious as to how you would have done this differently. Uh, well, there's there's a lot in that uh, question. So I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying I don't disagree with you. It's been it's been horrifying to watch this uh, vaccine rollout be so sloppy, so slow, sloppy, uh, poorly communicated. I mean, the communications piece has been a problem throughout COVID with this government. But it was uh, it was it's really a disservice to Ontarians and to, to watch the government, you know, suddenly say that vaccines are the solution for long-term care after a year of neglecting people in long-term care that's to me a horrifying reality but we so we've been pushing the government not only on you know being much more transparent so you talked Ryan about online and what's happening online uh, you know it's it's pathetic how how bare bones as you said but how meager Ontarians access to information is uh, compared to other provinces even i mean this government has been reticent to um, you know to inform to put put uh, their plan online uh, to uh, to make it um, you know a, a specific and detailed plan that people would actually get a sense of like when they might be next because that's what people rightfully so care about but it hasn't been like that it's been almost like secretive in some ways they you know you have to pull the information out of them uh, I was proud that we pushed and pushed hard enough to get them to uh, uh, prioritize uh, at-risk neighborhoods or the higher needs neighborhoods the hotspot neighborhoods protect particularly uh, in the GTA but some other places as well uh, because that was it was a no-brainer that's what needed to be done and they put that into their phase two but you're you know it, it, I think it's accurate to say that they did have a year to plan for this uh, but I don't think Doug Ford wanted to spend the money he didn't want to pony up what was necessary to pull this all together in um you know in a more effective and efficient uh, way and as a result I mean they only put their task force together at the beginning of December um, give me a break. I mean, there's just no doubt that everybody uh, is, um, you know, concerned about the sporadic um, access to to the vaccines 
writ large, you know, the federal government's issue. But regardless of that, we knew the vaccines were coming one way or another, like whether they come in dribs and drabs initially, it doesn't mean that you don't, you're not prepared for the, you know, for the huge shipments. Uh, but it's really clear that they weren't prepared. And I can only imagine how horrifying things would have been had the shipments been uh, massive and on time and and because uh, uh, our government in Ontario would not have been able to roll them out. So and, and as we know, I mean, there was they, they decided to, you know, to stop vaccinating over the Christmas, uh, you know, Christmas weekend or whatever the heck it, it was. I mean, come on, give me a break. This is not a matter of, well, we're just going to, you know, put our feet up for a little while and let a couple of days go by. I think they've yeah, I could go on and on, but it's really, really it's been it's been problematic and uh, we've been pushing them on pretty much every front including the fact that they you know notwithstanding how concerned we are about the variants they've relaxed things and now of course alarm bells are starting um, as to the uh, the third wave uh, particularly with the variants of concern and I know people are tired I know it's exhausting I know young people particularly uh, have lost so much in terms of you know, folks who we talked about coming you know being uh, educated at math but I, I worry a lot about you know young people in that age range and how much they've lost and where their academic uh, careers stand now and it's just it's a lot but uh, we got to we got to get that that uh, virus uh, you know wrestle to the floor stop that way we'll stop any further lockdowns but I'm, I'm afraid that we might end up in another one now and and young people yeah the impacts on every segment of the population are different yeah. but um yeah as as a young person impacted who has been doing other work that I would normally not do it's it's been interesting so I appreciate you bringing that up and something that's exciting to young people actually also which is the opposite of what I just said um, is the Ontario NDP launched a green new democratic deal policy paper and um, I wanted to talk to you about it because it's super exciting. Um, and I wanted to ask you about why this matters now and how climate justice has been incorporated into it and how young people have also been incorporated into it with the uh, Youth Climate Corps program, but also how, how do we get down our emissions? Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot, to, you know, there's a lot to be said about uh, what we can do and what we should be doing uh, and how to make sure it's, for us, it was really important to acknowledge there has to be a just transition. So the, the plan is the Green New Democratic Deal, uh, climate, jobs, and justice, uh, because these are things that um, that we think need to be part of a, uh, of a greening of our economy that leaves no one behind. I mean, that's really what it's all about. Uh, and we've seen other governments, you know, try to put things in place that didn't have um, those values underpinning them. And, uh, and really, I, I saw people who were avid environmentalists uh, start becoming anti-wind demonstrators, and I'm I'm not exaggerating. So we have to really be thoughtful and inviting, um, and make sure that uh, we're we're bringing people along with us in, in this uh, in this journey. But it can't be a long journey, so there's a bit of pressure there, and there should be. Uh, so we talk about um, net zero by 2050. Uh, we talk about the greening, uh, uh, the electrifying of all not only uh, Go Transit but all municipal transit. Uh, um, uh, authorities. We, we have uh, plans around a massive retrofit program, which would, in the first uh, term of office of the NDP, would bring 100,000 jobs online, but also making sure that we are training people into those jobs that are 
uh, from non-traditional uh, kinds of uh, communities. So, uh, for example, First Nations communities, we wouldn't ask them to come down south to get trained, though. We would be bringing training, um, you know, onto the uh, remote fly-in communities uh, where people can, you know, train and, and, and gain skills without having to leave their entire support networks, right? So so these are some of the things that, that, we've, uh, that we've talked about. But it's interesting because we started talking about the Green New Democratic Deal uh, over two years ago now. And we were actually going to launch it, the Green New Democratic Deal, in uh, April of last year. And the COVID hit. And so we had done already, you know, up, up until that point, we had done a, a year over a year of consultation. And I mean, consultation with, yes, with environmental uh, leaders, but also with business leaders, also with labor leaders, also with, uh, with youth and young people, also with folks from all kinds of different uh, parts of our province uh, on purpose, because, you know, that will fulfill our, um, I think our, that will lead to our success, I guess, when it comes to actually implementing. And so, and so in April, we, we thought, well, we, I mean, it's just, first of all, it'll get no attention because we were in the very beginning of, of uh, COVID, right? But second of all, we, we took a step back to say that we are going to have to do some serious work in terms of economic recovery after COVID's over. So it seems the smart thing to do to pull back the deal and then take it from a COVID recovery type of lens, which is we, so we added that layer on in terms of the economic recovery, in terms of the job creation. And let's face it, a green economy is a caring economy. Uh, and so not only did we launch the new Green New Democratic Deal as one of our platform planks, but also back in uh, uh, just before Christmas, I think it was November, we launched our uh, long-term care platform plank and we launched a housing platform plank. And you can see some of the themes here. I mean, we identified that our healthcare system is seriously understaffed. We know that the homelessness and mental health and addictions crisis has skyrocketed during COVID. Uh, so all of these things are opportunities to, you know, bring Ontario back uh, in a way that leaves nobody behind and that addresses some of the failures uh, of the old Ontario, the pre-COVID Ontario. Thank you for bridging those connections. Anybody who's left or a democratic socialist or whatever you label yourself is always connecting how the systemic failures are all indeed connected and climate justice is far beyond I'm going to plant trees. So I really appreciate that. Although that's in our plan too. That's in our plan too. Uh, yeah. yeah, and that's yeah. good. And that's good. And and, and it's, it's great to see a holistic plan rather than perhaps some other people who implement a, a one kind of prong approach. So it's great to see that. And, and this summer we saw people kind of pushing politicians beyond electoral politics, but also communities organizing during global uprisings throughout the world to talk about the end of police violence and brutality, which is targeted against black people. But in Canada, we also recognize the sustained brutal history of uh, violence against indigenous people. And the Ontario NDP has similarly put out an NDP commitment to action titled End Police Violence, Invest in Black, Indigenous and Racialized People's Lives. And I wanted to ask you, because listeners of our show really care about this issue, what are what are the updates on that and why does the NDP care about this issue uh, enough to put out a commitment on it, which other parties did not put out a similar commitment with the, the wording that the NDP did put out? Well, I mean, I think it's important to when when we saw what was happening, the idea that the people who want to who want to form government in Ontario, whether that be the NDP, you know, the Liberal Party, the Green Party, the Conservative Party, who are our government currently, you can't just pretend that this stuff's not happening and try to get away with not talking about it. Try to get away with 
not making any commitments, try to get away with just letting it kind of slide away and bury it or, or put it under the carpet uh, so that it doesn't have to, so that it doesn't create any, uh, you know, any risks, political risks. Well, you know what? That's an abdication of, uh, of leadership. It's an abdication of responsibility. And it's a, an insult uh, to all of the pain that people have felt for years and years and years now. And, and when there's a moment in time where all of these um, influences, all of these, inst- these instances, all of these factors uh, kind of collide, that's the time you have to, you know, you have to take advantage of that. You, you can't just go back to the, the same old way of burying your head in the sand and not dealing with uh, what's out there. And so, you know, we, we have a, we have an amazing group of uh, caucus members. Uh, you know, we have 40 MPPs, 20 of whom are women. So for two elections in a row now, we've made history uh, in, I guess that's, I guess you can't make history twice because once history's made, it's made, right? <laughs> but anyways, you get what I'm saying. When we had 20 MPPs, there were 10 that were women in the two, after the 2014 campaign, 2000 18 campaign uh or actually there were 17 and then we added three more but you know for that term of office but but we did it again and i have to say as leader i was really proud of that but it's a but it's not a one-time deal right i mean you have to maintain it you can't just say oh we we you know we reached that milestone the first party to ever have 50 percent women and then you know okay been there done that got the t-shirt definitely not so we did it again in 2018 and plus we actually elected a caucus that that largely reflects the people of Ontario. So not only is it fifty percent women, but we we actually elected enough people uh, who are uh, black, uh, identify as black, to actually have the first black caucus in any in any um, you know in any party uh, in Ontario's history. Uh, and we have we have people who are the fir- first timers. Like we have a, a the first time a Tibetan woman elected, first time a Bangladeshi woman uh, elected, a Somali man elected. I mean. We're darn proud of that. I mean, we are darn proud of that. So as a leader, when these things are happening, when the racism is happening, when the police violence is happening, when, you know, when we have activists and active voices who are being hurt, that we were going to caucus meetings and there was a lot of pain happening there. And I, as leader, I... I mean, I just can't imagine ignoring that. And so we made the commitment. You know, it's not going to be easy and we're going to get some backlash, but we have to start talking about systemic racism in a way that's not just reactive, but that's proactive. So that's what that um, that document is. And, um, and, we're, and we're serious about it. You know, it, it, and again, you know, Black Lives Matter is an amazing movement. Uh, you know, defund police is like a, uh, like a phrase that people got behind and created some momentum. But it's a matter of actually public policy change that's that's policing, but it's all kinds of other pieces as well. We've just done so poorly on so many levels. I mean, there's a the pipeline of uh, of kids being expelled from school and ending up in jail, for example. Yes. Uh, the the number of school boards that continue to uh, have complaints about uh, racism happening in schools. Uh, so you can fix the police kind of piece, but if you're not fixing some of these other systems, then how far are you really getting? So it, it has to be a lot more broad than um, than just the policing piece. And, you know, we're, we're committed to, to working on that. I mean, look, it was the NDP back in the 90s that started the uh, anti-racism directorate in the first place, right? I mean, unfortunately, Mike Harris, you know, disassembled it. We pushed the Liberals for years and years, and they finally put one together, but, you know, not as comprehensive. Uh, and of course, now Ford's tearing that apart too. So, like I, when in the '80s, I was telling you what my my own personal history, right? In the '80s, 
Honestly, I was fighting racism at, at City Hall. I created a access and equity office at City Hall in Hamilton in the 80s with the community, not me, just me, with the community to try to deal with the racism that was happening systemically in the municipality back then. I mean, geez, this is like 40 years later or, or 35 years later and we're still fighting the same battles. This can't be the same way. It can't be happening in 35 years from now. And as an elected person, I, you know, I think it's my obligation and my responsibility as a leader, particularly, to uh, to take it on. I was on the status of women committee in Hamilton. Oh, so that's a little, uh, and so I'm uh, familiar with that yeah. office. Oh yeah, yeah. We have one last question because we know we, we're cognizant of time and we appreciate yeah, so it. So just as we're we're winding down, we we would love to know a little bit more about the future of the Ontario NDP, the leadership, how you're building the party base and holding on to the momentum that was gained from the last election. We would hate to see that die down like as the liberals start to regain power so we would love to know like what some of the plans and hopes and futures are yeah well you know what we're excited uh we are excited we we are on a mission to inform government in 2022 uh we just can't our province just can't afford another liberal government that talks a good game but doesn't really change much at all in 15 years i mean uh, you know during that 15 years in office uh, they sold off Hydro One. I mean, give me a break. Uh, you know, they had all kinds of, as you know, sc- scandals in terms of money, uh, at cash for access. They, uh, I mean, they, 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 they just, they were really, really disappointing. Uh, they talked a good game. Uh, but once they um, were in were in office, it was really became more about liberals and their insiders and uh, how they could uh, stay in power as opposed to do something with their power. I mean, Toronto became the child poverty capital of Canada under the Liberal Watch. I mean, talk about any progressive issues. I mean, we people, as I said earlier, started to turn their back on environmental initiatives because because of the scandals around what the the way that the Liberals, you know, implemented, you know, their greening program. Their uh, their uh, not it wasn't so much the cap and trade, but it was the feed and tariff uh, debacle. It was the uh, the wind pieces that um, the wind energy pieces down in the south of Ontario and up north as well that that really turned people off. So my 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 point is, uh, people don't well. So people do forget <laughs> when it comes to politics. People forget way too soon, but we're not going to let them forget. So uh, you know. We're going to keep working uh, towards um, providing the people of Ontario hope, hope that things can actually change, uh, hope that uh, a government can be elected that will address some of the big issues that people face, as well as the everyday challenges that people face, and a a government that knows uh, that with a little bit of help, People will get the will have hope, and they will be able to build a better life in our province. And so, it's all about helping people, uh, especially coming out of COVID, building that hope. and uh, And that's why we're putting out our, our election platform pieces because we need people to know that uh, that yes, we can. Like we can tackle racism. We can tackle climate change. We can fix our health care system and home care and long-term care, get the profits out and make sure it's all about our loved ones and our seniors. We can deal with a housing crisis where not only, you know, lower income folks are unable to find a home uh, or to put a roof over their heads, but, but, but young people starting, you know, starting out in life can't afford property anymore because it's gotten so expensive. And so our program looks at all of these things. And so we're just going to keep doing that. We're going to keep, you know, pushing against this terrible government, uh, dragging us back on the environment and in so many other ways. Uh, and we're going to, we're going to kind of remind people, you know, that if you want to waste 
another 20 years, then vote liberal again. But if you actually want to see some things get done, uh, and we only need to look at provinces like British Columbia, for example, which is led by an NDP government, and, and, and the NDP has formed government in, in BC a number of times, uh, but they, made, they do have some, they've made some progress on some of these files as well. And they've, they're one of the best provinces when it comes to how COVID was handled uh, also. So, you know, that's, that's our message. Uh, there's, there's hope, uh, and we're here to help, and we're gonna we're gonna fight and push and, and and you know try to hold Doug Ford's feet to the fire as much as possible, and we're gonna continue to grow. And, and you know I, I do want to say that it certainly wasn't me alone. But when I got elected as leader of my party back in uh, 2009 now, and people mock me because I've been, you know, it's been 12 years uh, that I've been leader, but I'm proud of it because when I took over, we had eight MPPs in the legislature, eight, and four of us were running for leader and one of us was the former leader. So it was not great. And we didn't have, I mean, we talked a good game around you know, around diversity and around women's issues and around environment and all these things. We talked a great game. But when I looked around my party, we we didn't look the way we talked. And I can tell you now, not only do we look the way we talk as a party, but our caucus is looking the way we talk. And, uh, and, and I'm just, I'm so proud of that. But the job's not over. What we need is a government, a government that looks and talks the way you know, the way today's New Democrats uh, look and talk. Thank you so much. And I appreciate the the authentic, like, self-reflection on what the party looks like, because a lot of younger people are, it's something that concerns us. And it's related to a lot of different systemic uh, racism issues, but also the people who represent you should actually know what, what your life is like. So I really appreciate yeah. that and appreciate that you gave us so much time today. Yeah, My pleasure. You. Absolutely. My pleasure. Nice to see you both. Hey, these episodes take a small team. Solo episodes are hosted by me, Ashwalina Khan. American political episodes are co-hosted by Dawson Kimian. Canadian political episodes are co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande. Music and art for Hibipti Please is done by Post America and Johnny Zapras. Editing is done by Johnny Zapras. Production assistance by Raymond Hanano and Dawson Kimian and sometimes some other Habibis on our team. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at Patreon forward slash Habibti Please. And you can find us on Twitter at Habibti Please with a B. This takes a bit of money and your support helps us carry on the show and continue producing some unique content. So it's much appreciated. Yalla, let's grab some tea and shisha.